Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. This week, I'm thrilled to be joined by Angela Myers. Angela has taught every level of school from kindergarten to graduate school. She's an award-winning speaker, consultant, blogger, founder of Choose to Matter, and author of eight books, including Liberating Genius, The Haptitudes, and The Passion-Driven Classroom. Angela, as you know, the show is centered on leadership development. I would love to hear your personal leadership journey on how you went from the classroom to the founder of your own consultant company and creator of the Choose Matter movement. I think leadership is one of the most fascinating, profound topics that exist because there's so many misnomers around it. And I think those misnomers prevent us from becoming the leader we were meant to be. So as an educator, as a veteran educator, leadership was presented and sustained as a positional operation. I never, ever called myself a leader. So even when I moved into leadership roles in my career, because I was a PhD dropout and because I didn't have the right title or the right letters or the right position, I didn't categorize myself as a leader. It wasn't until I got to the web when you started seeing Twitter lists and like LinkedIn and started learning like, why are all these people putting labels around you? Like, why am I on that list or why? And then I, you know, would scroll through it just because I thought it was just strangely curious to see which box people put me in that knew me, that didn't know me. And leader was one of the most popular ones. And I started thinking, well, you know what? If people perceive me as a leader, I'm going to call myself a leader. And I remember that moment. I'm like, I'm going to write leader on stuff and see what happens. And it was like the weirdest thing because I felt like I was cheating. It is something that I didn't embody all that a leader is, even though my actions, I believe, are what leaders do. But I still didn't officially believe that I was worthy enough to be a leader till really late, like just in the last few years. And then once I started doing that, then you sort of step up and step into that responsibility and start acting and behaving as if you were a leader. And I want so much for young people, for individuals to understand that leadership is not about position. It is not about role or title. It is about your actions and your character. And I think the best definition for me as a leader is the ability that you have as an individual to create more leaders. A leader isn't there to give you followers. A leader is there to create and nurture and cultivate more leaders. And isn't that what every teacher does every day? Isn't that what every principal does every day? In essence, every educator I know is a leader. Mm -hmm. So they just don't call themselves that. I'm so passionate about that topic. And because it was, it's such a personal topic to me because it does, instead of inviting people to becoming their best, most impactful, influential selves, it actually puts a bubble around people and takes away people that can influence you and puts them in a separate category. You know, this is like, even look at staff development. This is for the leaders. This is for leaders only, or we're doing a leadership summit. Well, gosh, shouldn't everybody be at that summit? Isn't that our job is to develop leadership skills and attributes in every person, whether it's leading their own life, you don't have to lead an organization to be a leader. So what are your thoughts on that? 
No, I think that kind of leads into my next question. I think there's a perception in education that to be a leader, you have to fill a position in administration at the campus or district levels. I want to know for our aspiring leaders, what are some specific examples that they can impact outside of administration? I think the most important thing is you make an impact on another person. So I'm going to step back a little bit. When I look at the greatest leaders I know, they always notice something about the individuals in their presence. Great leaders see things in others and are able to bring that out or bring that up front, even when the person themselves doesn't see it. And so I think that's the the first step in leadership is recognizing that you have the ability to impact anybody in your presence. It doesn't matter um, where they are, where they stand, and you do that by recognizing that you're as, um, as lucky is the wrong word, but you're as blessed and grateful to be in their presence as they should or are in your presence. Mm -hmm. And so to have that, you need to have a, a learning mindset. You need to have a mindset that you, you are always in a position to be influenced by someone else. So I think people in leadership talk about influence. I think it is more important to be influenced if you're gonna influence, if if you're gonna attempt to influence other people. Mm -hmm. And so being interested and being influenced and being impacted by other people is the foundational requirement for any chance that you have to lead or make an impact. So I want to go back because you've taught multiple levels of education. How did you go from kindergarten to grad school? (laughs) You're going to give away my age. Dang it. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) No, I started with uh, three and four-year-olds in Mm -hmm. preschools, which was awesome. And then my first like official job in schools was kindergarten. And that's like the best grade in the whole world. And when people say like everything I know I learned in kindergarten – I mean that, like I say that in every speech, everything I know about this topic, I learned in kindergarten, teaching kindergarten. And then I did um, what was called, I don't know what they call it now, but we called it looping back then. So I had kindergarten and then first grade and then went back to kindergarten. So I got them for two years. It was incredible. And then I taught all the way third, fourth and fifth grade. And then I taught sixth, seventh and eighth grade dropout prevention. I sort of skipped high school, teaching high school, and then was at the university for 12 years and then went back and worked with high school students. So basically I've taught everything from uh, preschool to grad school (laughs) and everything in between. So in that experience, what was the most impactful leadership experience that you had that enhanced those skills? Oh my gosh, that is such a profound question. I think it wasn't a lesson until I left the classroom. So I go back to when I left kindergarten, I jumped right away to fourth grade or maybe after teaching first grade, jumped right away to fourth grade, fourth and fifth grade, title one read. And I guess I was in a bubble. And as a kindergarten teacher, you're just so exhausted and overwhelmed with your kids and all the energy that goes into that. And then I moved up the grades and I was just profoundly impacted by how much passion and how much hope and how much soul kids had lost at fourth grade. And I'm, I thought this is some anomaly, like it must be just this group of kids or this group. And so like after stepping outside of my bubble, so my leadership lesson was 
and it came from kindergarten, the thing that kindergartners never let you underestimate is their value. And I think it's easy to be a kid's teacher and start getting not overwhelmed, but concerned about like, I've got to cover this and I've got to cover this and forget that kids have stuff to teach us. Well, when you're a kindergarten teacher, you you can't like go on with your own agenda. Like you can't just roll over their needs to be noticed and to be recognized and to contribute. Like if you skipped show and tell as a kindergarten teacher, oh my gosh, that you just don't. Like just the thought of it gave me chills. You just don't. What five-year-olds teach you is that every learner has something fundamental. They feel a moral obligation to share it with you every single day. And they made you stop what you were doing, whatever your agenda was, and recognize not only them as individuals, but them as a community willing to support and help each other. And I think that's a great leadership lesson because the moment you underestimate one kid, one member of your community, the moment you lose as a leader, because your job is to activate the best of whoever is in your presence. And you're only as good as your most challenging student. You're only as good as your weakest staff member. If you don't understand how to unleash human potential, not only individually, but to work together, then you will struggle as a leader. It doesn't matter how many good people you have because one person that hesitates or holds back or doesn't believe in themselves or doesn't contribute fully for any of those reasons, your entire organization, your entire classroom suffers. So I think that's the biggest lesson five-year-olds taught me about leadership is that, I know it's going to sound cliche, but everyone matters and everybody has something to show and tell. And you need to make time to let them open up their backpacks and show you what they brought to the table. There's no agenda that's more important than that. So in your experience, which leadership skill was the most difficult to develop? Oh, by far, courage. The opposite of courage is not cowardice. It's not doing some big, grand, ridiculous thing. Courage is confronting our own comfortability. We're wired to be risk averse. And then we're in these organizations, in these bubbles that are massively risk averse. So the idea of moving away from you know, best practice, it needs to be perfection was strangling me as a teacher and a leader. Like I wouldn't dare present something or try something or take a risk. God forbid that I'd mess up every day working on doing something that pushes my comfort level. Like people will say, well, you've been speaking for 25 years. You've been doing speeches, you know, isn't it get easier? No, it gets harder because I set the bar higher every time. I push myself. I don't need to do that. I must do that. So I accepted a job in a couple months for a large group of, of banking organizations. Like, and part of me is petrified. Like, what do I have to say to, you know, world bankers? But I'm like, all right, this is a new audience and they can teach me something and I can grow and I will be better as a speaker. Being brave isn't about you know, taking some mass risk. It is about confronting comfortability, challenging the status quo in your own life. And I think even leaders get in ruts because we want practice that has been tried and true because that's easy to get a win off that. 
if you do this, you'll get this result. But what if you do this? You could get a bigger result, but you could also fail. That confrontation every day with failure and the role that it plays in your growth is hard because it doesn't matter. Like as much as you want to confront it, it sucks to fail. It does. It is frustrating when things don't go your way and you work so hard and you try so hard and you just are like, you know, can I get a break? Anything that is worth doing is going to be painful. It is. That's what people misunderstand about passion. Passion isn't doing what you love to do or doing things that are fun for you. The root word of passion is to suffer, which is why leaders need to be passionate because there's a lot of suffering that comes with leadership, a lot of loneliness and a lot of failure. And the only way to survive that is to create a practice of constantly pushing the status quo in your own life. Because if you don't have those scars and those battle wounds to model, you are not going to get people that follow you to take chances or to do brave things because they see you playing it safe. Mm -hmm. So yeah, good luck trying to be a fearless organization when you're like, yeah, you do that, but no, not me. <laughs> I'm going to stay right here. <laughs> yeah. So that's hard. It's tough. Like anybody who says that it's not is lying mm -hmm. because it doesn't matter how many successes you have. Failure hurts the exact same. When you transitioned from the classroom to speaking and doing your consulting company, what was the biggest misconception as you began that experience? I think I have been an entrepreneur in my heart for always. I've always embodied that mindset. I think the hardest part is that kids are easy. And I don't mean that in a, a simplistic way. Kids are honest. Kids are straightforward. Kids tell it like it is. There's no politics with kids. You screw up with them. They let you know. You do better the next day. There's just an authenticity and an honesty with kids. And I never, ever played games with kids, ever. Adults, not so much. So politics and the trying to find the right team members, the right staff, people that you respect or people that you like or enjoy being around are not necessarily best in terms of business or best in terms of growing business or launching something. So hard because in education, you're surrounded by your teammates and your classmates and they're like, you know, they're your friends as well. It's really different when you're running a business. You, you know, they say don't go into business with your friends or don't go. It's a, it's a lot when you're putting the assets out there. I think the hardest part has been navigating that, navigating the parts of the business that aren't, that aren't fun. It isn't that the hard part of it is, is figuring out how to surround yourself with the right people. And in education, you don't really have a choice of who you surround yourself with. In business, you have to self-select that. And making a mistake is not just profoundly personally detrimental, it's profoundly detrimental to your whole brand and your whole business. I've made some mistakes in that area. And that's it's hard because you need to surround yourself with people and you need to push yourself and you need you need many different kinds of genius around you. It's not laid out. There's no book for that. There's no book for entrepreneurs that say you need this kind of person or that kind of person. So the reason 99% 
of startups fail is not because they have a bad product or a bad idea. It's because they can't find the right team. They can't find the right combination of people. And that's a hard, that's a really hard lesson that nobody prepared me for. I'm just like, oh, these people like the concept or they like me personally. And then this is just going to work and we're going to be one big happy family. And it's, it's not that way. So that's, it's really hard. Running a business is really hard. So you have an incredible pulse on the future of education. As you travel around the world, what is the largest barrier to the success of leaders? <laughs> Their memory, history. <laughs> Honest to God, the mindset of this is how we've always done it. This is how it's going to be. This worked in the past. So in half my life, half my world and half my work, I am surrounded by futurists. So I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs and startups and futurists and visionaries that the idea, like the concept of best practice doesn't exist. You're talking about now practice and next practice. And the idea of waiting until it is refined and waiting until you've got evidence that it's going to be perfect is death in that space. So education is built on best practice. You don't try anything until you can prove it 500 ways to Sunday. And, and the implementation plan is like 17 years and 57 binders later. You can't think like that. I think the biggest challenge is in creating not only kids being ready for this new world, but for adults to create conditions in schools where kids can experience things like fail quick and fail forward, like, you know, it's not perfect, put it out there. This isn't about hanging in the hallway, the most perfect spelling things, putting content out there that's raw and real and authentic and not a five paragraph essay. All of those things get in the way of both kids' movement forward and our ability as a system to move forward. That's where the big disconnect is between the world of work. So we're educating the heck out of kids. Like there's the, the argument, like the argument today in a podcast I did was our kids are not educated and not prepared for the future. No, they're educated, but they're educated based on our past, based on our experience. They need to have this test score and they need to have, you know, this class and they need to have the, no, they don't. They do not. <laughs> that does not apply. And because educators in general aren't a part of this world and don't follow these conversations, this is a foreign land to them. So they're preparing them with the bubble that they've existed in and then the, the limited amount of exposure. So it's really hard to move forward. It's like climbing ladder A and climbing ladder B. Like you're climbing it and moving forward but you're on two different buildings. <laughs> so unless we bridge that gap in, in a multitude of ways by understanding, and I don't mean colleges communicating because colleges are half the problem. Colleges saying, this is what it takes. Well, college and career ready means something completely different than it did five years ago. And it will mean something completely different five days from now, five years from now. And so you've got some colleges that are innovative, but I look at what my daughter 
here's just an example. So I sort of helped her in a paper and she was doing modern communications. She was doing media and communications. She's taking this class at the university, which I'm paying out the ears for. And so I was helped her talk about news and the bias and all the stuff that's going on with that video that's going around and giving her something. So I wrote a couple sentences for her. So she calls me back today. She's like, mom, I use some of your quotes and some of your words and the teacher's asking if she can use that because she couldn't find that. She wondered where I found that, not in the textbook. And I'm, I'm just like, that's because the textbook you're using for modern communications, the fact that you're using a textbook in the first place is a problem. I think that it's about, not about standards, but about experiences and the experiences that we need to have that mirror the experiences not only that kids are going to have in the future, but that exists right now. So if I look at just today in my life, I've had five global conversations, one with a translator, four with people from all over the world that I will be collaborating with that I've never met before in different degrees of formality, some with four or five people coming in, some with not. And what do we use video for in schools? We use it to watch videos or to make some silly, you know, whatever, and not shared. But we're not teaching kids video etiquette or how to do what we're doing right now or how to interview someone else or how not to talk too much like I'm doing right now. But there's all of these things that need to be contextualized. Context is everything. I know that's a long-winded way of saying, I do believe there's hope. I do believe there's hope. Teachers have to have a lot more varied experience because we're asking them to create conditions for which they have no idea even exist. And that's not fair to them. For sure. And so as an educator, I'm, I'm thinking I love everything you said, but also living in that world, yeah. as you know, it's an act of Congress sometimes to make any sort of change right. for our established leaders in the schools. What are some ways that we can change the mindset of education so that we can be innovative and collaborative with our students? The most absolute important first act is for you to be a real life global learner yourself. You know your kids are gonna grow up in a connected world. If you know your kids are gonna have to manage real time information, if you know that your kids are gonna be engaging with people that they've never met before or individuals that see the world from different perspectives, from different races and religions and, and cultures, then you as a leader have a moral obligation to go first to experience not only what that is like, but to experience what it takes to prepare for those things to happen. And so this isn't saying, you know, sign up for Twitter right away, sign up for Facebook, sign up for whatever, but whatever medium that you choose, whether it be Facebook, whether it be Twitter, whether it be Instagram, whether it be, you must be a learning leader. And if you're not engaging in any of the practices that our kids are engaging in, and I think the most important differentiating factor is the act of contributing original content. So what you're doing right now in this medium is contributing original content. That takes courage. That takes confidence. That takes practice. And each time you get a little bolder, you get a little more creative. You didn't do that on your first podcast. It is not a simple thing to undertake. It's not just about pushing a button. I'm sure that you could write a book right now, which you should, on all the <laughs> lessons you learned interviewing people 
through the medium of podcast. So I don't care what form it takes. I don't care if you're a writer. I don't care if you're an artist. I don't care if you make videos. I don't care if you have not engaged in the process of creating original content and putting it out for the world to react to it, for the world to be impacted by it. That will be the single most differentiating factor for our kids in the future. And so how can we get them in a place to be able to do that if they have no model of any teacher or leader around them that does that on a consistent basis? Mm -hmm. Because that, I guess, when you look back at my second leadership lesson, that is the thing that changed me most as a leader, is recognizing that my voice did matter and that I did have the ability without authority, without power and position to influence and impact. And that's when I started really acting like a leader and really caring about how what I say and do and create impacted and moved people forward. How can you grow leaders that are gonna be asked to do that, implored to do that in the future, and they never see a model of that? Mm -hmm. That is my challenge to you. And for those in their leadership journey, what advice do you have for them? What is it that the world needs to hear from you? You need to answer that question. It isn't just about getting kids to answer that question. When I say to any learner, any community of any age, you are a genius and the world needs your contribution, I'm looking in the face of not just kids, I'm looking in the face of every teacher and every leader. Seeing it as like go back to show and tell with five-year-olds. Five-year-olds bring the best of who they are in their backpack every day. Not because they want to show off and say, what's in my backpack is better than yours. It's because they believe that what they have has the ability to inspire or enlighten or brighten someone else's day. And to leave it in your backpack would be something that is incomprehensible. In fact, when kids, when kindergartners run in with their backpack, they are literally about to burst like a bubble because they want to open it up and show it to you because they, they know, or they might have specifically brought something in there because they know you liked it. And so what if every, every teacher did that? What if every leader did that? Every day ran to school with something in their backpack that they came with the intention of sharing it to impact another person. And that is a greatest leadership lesson. That is from five-year-olds. Show and tell matters. <laughs> it does. So in addition to you speaking, having your own consulting company, you blog and you're very active on social media. What was the point where you found your voice? <sighs> how many blog posts, how long have I been writing? I don't even know if I have found my voice still. I'm still looking for it. I think the point where I was confronted about having to figure out what my story was, what my voice was, was probably the TED Talk because I had a speech all written for it. And I had gone, you have to go through these rehearsals and I rehearsed it. And at four in the morning, I woke up and I was like, I can't do this. I don't, I don't have anything to say. And then I'm like, what would I say to my kids? Would I look in a five-year-old's face and say, you don't have something to share. I cannot look in kids' face and not stand up there. And I'm like, really, you have 17 minutes to tell the world everything that you stand for. And that's where you matter came out. It isn't that I created that for the TED talk. It is everything that I believe and everything that five-year-olds taught me. 
And I think that's when I really was able in a very short amount of time to say, this is really the essence of who I am. It doesn't matter what lens it's been under, whether it's been under leadership or innovation or technology or whatever. It really is about how do we allow, how do we model first, but how do we allow people to, or, you know, invite people to understand that their voice matters, that they have something that someone else in the world needs and would be less than without. I think that's where I started refining my voice. I don't know if it's necessarily where I found it, but I think that's where I really liked the sound of my voice then. For those who haven't had the opportunity to read The Habitudes and Genius Matters, can you describe how these books may help our aspiring leaders? So I think each of the books, each of my books have different angles. And I think there's, it's a twofold one. It isn't about selling my books either. It is, I think the habitudes is one because it embodies the skill set that we not only need to practice, but that we need to model. Sure. So if you look at the attributes of, you know, like my favorite activity on leadership is, you know, who is your leadership hero? I mean, who is it that you aspire to be when you envision, like you say the word leader, who's the person that immediately comes in your mind? And then if you look at all their incredible trades, what's the one trait that stands out? And so I've done this with thousands and thousands of leaders, and it's always the same body of traits. And so it doesn't matter if it was, you know, a leader in sports or a leader in industry or a leader that was somebody that mentored you personally. It is a very, very specific set, a narrow set of traits. And so uh, they're not really skills. They're a series of habits and disciplines that these individuals have committed to, but most importantly, their mindsets. So right. I think Habitudes summarizes that and how to not only teach those, but how to be models of those. And then I think that the other book, um, my latest book, uh, Genius Matters, because all of those traits actually exist in five-year-olds. So this is the conversation I had today with the head of the Children's Network for the UN and looking at not just seeing childhood as sort of a token time in our lives, but understanding what we can learn from children hmm. and that it is the attributes of keeping those genius traits all the way through adulthood. I say that Genius Matters is a playbook to get back to your five-year-old self. And I think the best leaders are an embodiment of a five-year-old and all that is extraordinary about five-year-olds. So either one of those I really like because they're practical mini lessons in practice. So, and there are things that I'm living, like the, the Habitudes is, oh my gosh, it'll be coming up on a decade old and it's selling more today than before because I think that it takes us a while to come into the relevance of something, you know, and when I wrote it, it was sort of ahead of where we were in education. And now it's just starting to make sense. Like, how do you operationalize these big grand ideas, like creating the leader and learner for the future? You know, how do you build an organization? All of those things are really grand ideas. This is like, what does that sound like? What's it look like? What does it feel like? with third graders or with a staff of 30 or with an organization of 30,000. And that's what I feel like my place is in the space is to operationalize things that other people talk about mm -hmm. <laughs> that are good ideas that are really smart and 
worthy to, but they're so complex and complicated, they're overwhelming and they don't need to be. I'd love to dive a little bit farther into the Habitudes test. How does that work? Okay. So when I say leader, who's the most immediate image that pops into your mind? In the educational forum? No, in general. Like I'm not going to put any boundaries around it. When I say leader, who stands out? So like Martin Luther King. That's a really amazing leader. So of all the amazing traits of Martin Luther King, what's the one quality that sets him apart? Or what's the one quality about him that trumps all of his other qualities? Bravery. Yes. Just that fearless mindset. Absolutely. And then that's a trait. That's a habitude. Courage is a habitude. So it's not accidental. It's not that some have and some don't. It's just something that he's developed at a level that is Olympic size level. And so in closing, what is the most enjoyable aspect of leadership? Watching someone else step up and step into their genius. Watching someone who didn't believe in themselves, who didn't see, especially the ones that don't think they have any leadership ability, any ability to influence. And I don't mean just, I think I've seen this more in teachers than I have actually kids because kids believe in themselves eventually. Just watching somebody really understand how powerful they are and stepping back and giving them a front row seat to their own brilliance. It's just the most beautiful, like that's, that's what leaders live for. And so how can our listeners connect with you on social media? It doesn't matter where I'm there. So if they like Facebook, I'm there. If they like, so I'm not on Instagram. So if anybody wants to teach me Instagram, I don't know why I haven't gotten on that. But anywhere. So I'm just my name everywhere. I'm just me. And if you forget my name, just type in you matter and then you get to it that way. So um, you can always email me. I am. And it's me answering. I don't outsource myself. So you get who you get. Like it's me. (laughs) So I'm excited to meet them. I'm excited to learn from them. And I'm just really proud of you for sharing your genius with the world. And I'm honored to have been a part of the conversation and keep it up. Please continue to check out the Aspire podcast. And if you've gotten any value from the show at all, please subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you're listening. Don't forget to use the Aspire lead hashtag as you continue the conversation on Twitter. Angela, thank you so much for being on the program. Yes, absolutely. 